Okay. Let us <clears throat> open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, I thank you that we are here, not just here in the church, but here in your church, that we are in a long line of believers that have been faithful to you, that have proclaimed you and suffered for you. I pray that you will encourage us and strengthen us to do the same. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't have notes, there are note, more notes being printed, so we'll, as soon as Brandon gets back, we'll have more for you. Um, so last week, Hoyt left off kind of where the Bible leaves off, in a way. So Acts, he was covering the period of the church that is covered in the book of Acts, and today we are leaving the Bible behind. I mean, we're not leaving it behind, you know what I mean, but we're leaving the history as is recounted in the Bible behind, and we are moving out into unfamiliar waters. So what happens to the church after the book of Acts, and you could also say after the book of Revelation? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So if you will look at the top of the notes, and I'm sorry for those that you that don't have them yet, but you will see this shortly. Uh, I made a little timeline that is going to be that kind of gives you an idea of the time period that we're going to be discussing for the next several weeks in this class. And so we post biblical time, we're going to be looking at three different periods, and those periods are largely defined by the writings of the leaders of the church in those times. What was that? Okay. So, how do we know about the church in these time periods? Well, we mostly know about it from the writings that have been handed down to us, and as we go through this, there's going to be more and more and more to the point of being very copious writings that have been handed down over the last several centuries from people in these time periods. So, that, so as you look on the chart, you can see, and the, the dates there, 100, 150, 300, and 600. These are all Anno Domini, A.D., so Latin for the year of our Lord, not after dead. Um, so, uh, sorry, that's a little theological, historical humor there. Uh, so the three periods are the apostolic fathers, the apologists, and the theologians, as you can see on the chart. And what you see in the writings for these time periods is an increasingly complex, an increasingly, uh, what's a word that I'm looking for, intricate and detailed explanation, explication, exposition of the Scriptures. So the doctrinal development of the church is going to be Simple at first, and then refined 
and then refined further until we are into very uh, to to a, a theological development that would be very familiar to us today. So the church is going to have to handle uh, how it explains what it believes from the scriptures, but it's going to, each each of these phases is going to be in response to a heresy. Do you, do you know what heresy is? Is it are you familiar with that word? It's a deviation from true doctrine of the church. So it's heretical is the word we would say. It's you know so the the Jehovah's Witnesses are heretical. Uh, the Mormons are heretical. Uh, so the church is going to be confronted by false teaching, and they're going to have to say. What are the terms that we're going to use? What, are the, what, what phrases are we going to use to summarize and state what it is that we believe? And so that's going to be the trajectory over the next several weeks. Today, here come the notes. So if you guys need notes, raise your hands because Brandon has them. Uh, so today we're going to be dealing with the first generation of the church, or the first couple of generations of the church, after the passing of the age of the apostles. There's one more in the background. So, who was the last of the apostles to die? John. And he, he died roughly, just ballpark, we don't know exactly when, but you can say roughly around 90, 81, 80, 90. So that's, that's the end of the apostolic period. It could have been a couple years after that, but ballpark, it's about that. So he was more than likely the only one of the apostles and the only one of the disciples to, see, to live long enough to see the destruction of Jerusalem. By that point, it's likely that most of the apostles, if not all of them, were, had already been, what, martyred. So, John is the only one that we have any idea that wasn't martyred. Who was the first apostle to be martyred? No, he wasn't an apostle. James. So, chapter 12 of the book of Acts describes James being martyred. Uh, So, with the passing of the apostolic age then, the church is going to be confronted with its first real challenge, and that is recognizing, or let me, let me rephrase it, being able to deal with problems, to deal with false teaching, to be able to guide the churches without being able to appeal to an apostle that was appointed by, you know, to an authority appointed by God, like a living authority. So now for the first time, the church is on its own. So what does it have? What does it have to guide it? Well, it has two things. It has the Scriptures. And it has the teaching of the apostles that's going to be handed down to students who are then going to hand it down to other students. We'll get into that in a minute. So that's what we call apostolic succession. And it is both a good thing, and eventually it will become a more problematic thing. But initially it's good and important. So the Apostolic Fathers, I have a short list there on the first page. Oh, just 
I meant to mention it. On the last page of your notes, I included a map of the Roman Empire. Uh, so as I talk about, if I talk about a place or something like that, you might want to turn to the back page of the notes and reference, reference that. Um, so uh, the, I include on the front page there a list of the, the apostolic fathers, which strangely enough aren't all people. So the column on the, the left, there's four names there, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, and Papias of Hierapolis. But on the other column, you will see the homily of Second Clement, the epistle to Diognetus, the Didache, the shepherd of Hermas, and the epistle of Barnabas. All of those in the left column, the authors are unknown. So they, we don't know who wrote those. So in some cases, we have some suspicions, but we don't know for certain. Yes, the right column, I'm sorry. I'm cross-eyed today, I guess. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Yes, the right-hand column. So the one with five rather than the one with four. And those are, also, those are going to be important documents that are going to help guide the church, but it's going to be the ones in the left-hand column. I got it right. Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, and to a significantly lesser degree, Papias, that are going to be the focus of our discussion today. Um, so, but first I want to set the milieu in which this is going on, which, what, what is the world like at this point? And what the world is like is actually pretty dang good. Who's ever heard of Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire? It's, it's possibly the single greatest work of history ever written. So Gibbon begins his account of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire at Rome at its peak. And he then traces it for the next almost about 1,400, 1,400 years of its, of its history to the fall of Constantinople, which incidentally you know, was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire, there was a, a continuity from Augustus all the way to the last emperor, Constantine the Eleventh of the Eastern Roman Empire, and it fell. He died in the fall of Constantinople 40 years before Columbus discovered America. So when we think of Rome, we usually think of it, you know, falling back in the Dark Ages, and that's true for the western half of the Roman Empire, but the eastern half is going to persist for another thousand years through the Middle Ages. And its fall is one of the things that's going to precipitate the Renaissance and, and things like that. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, anyway, Gibbon begins his history, though, during what he calls the five good emperors of Rome. And they rule from 96 to 180. I didn't include this in the notes. But he says that if he were to look back through human history at all the previous times prior to his own, that if he had to pick one time, one place, that was the best place to be alive in the 4,000 years of history, 5,000 years of human history that he knew of prior to when he wrote, and he was writing around the time of the American Revolution, he would say he would choose to live, he would say the best time to be alive was during the reign of the five good emperors of Rome. 
So that is the time period that we are talking about. So the, the Apostle John dies on the eve of this new dynasty that's going to see Rome come to its greatest heights. So it's a good time to be alive in a lot of ways. It's the peak of what we call the Pax Romana, which is Latin for the Roman peace. It's a time when within the empire, if you're inside the empire, there's prosperity, there's liberty, there's interest in good government on the part of the emperors themselves. You'll see in a quote here in a minute from one of the emperors talking about it, you know, dealing harshly with people is not conducive to the spirit of the age. They are in, these emperors are interested in good government. And one of the ways that happened, this is a total digression, but it, it's important, is they eschewed dynastic succession, and the way the emperors ensured positive government was by adopting as his son the one man in all the empire that he deemed most capable of carrying on the positive government that he had. So he was looking around and picking the guy and grooming him to succeed him. And it's going to work. And that five good emperors is going to end when the last of the five, who was still a good emperor, just let his son follow him. And he ruined it all. If you guys have ever seen the movie Gladiator, that's a very fictionalized account of what happened with Marcus Aurelius and Commodus. Anyway, all that to say is that... Uh, this is a good time to be alive, and because of the peace and the prosperity, it's actually a great time for the church to be growing, because they are able to move about, I mean, not just Christians, but anybody can move about with relative safety throughout the empire. They had the means to move about, the financial assets to move about, to spread the gospel, and to do so without being hindered significantly by the Romans. Now, that begs the question, what about persecution? And there was persecution at that time. There was the, the first real persecution, I mean, the first real persecution was when they were still in Jerusalem and Stephen was martyred. So there's going to be persecution of Christians consistently through its history during this time. But there's two, two things that have to be that you filter that through. One is that it was not, and this is really, really important, it was not the policy of the Roman government to persecute Christians willy-nilly. So when there was persecution, it was very localized, as in the case with Nero, which Hoyt mentioned last week, Nero blamed the church for the burning of the city of Rome. But that, and, and, then the, and the church around Rome was heavily persecuted. I mean, there were accounts of, and Hoyt kind of mentioned this to some degree. I don't know how much time he, I mean, I don't think he spent a lot of time on it. But Nero was famous for lighting his rather risque dinner parties by hanging Christians and burning them and using them as torches. So, I mean, talk, you know, if you can imagine hedonism, well, it was hedonism lit by martyrs. So, I mean, it was the worst 
and the greatest all at the same time. So you also had lots of persecution breaking out in other parts of the empire, but again, very localized, as in Jerusalem, which was consistently a site where Christians were persecuted. When James, son of Zebedee, was, uh, when he was martyred, that was in the year 44, the Jews were looking for a reason to kill him. And when the Roman governor left and the next Roman governor hadn't gotten there, the high priest convened a council of judges and said, kill him. So it was basically a judicial murder. You know, but it was, again, a very localized persecution. In Antioch, which is not very far away from Jerusalem, the church was thriving and not being persecuted. So those are the two things that you have to remember about what the church was contending with in this time. Now, we'll get into this possibly next week or the week after that. That policy of the Roman government is going to change. And in 250, it is going to become the policy of the Roman government empire-wide to persecute Christians. So they are going to be tortured, they are going to be murdered, and the scriptures are going to be burned, and it is going to be the official policy of the government to do that wherever they were found. But at this point in time, that's not the case. And as an example, I want to read to you uh, an excerpt from a letter from the Emperor Trajan uh, to the governor of the province of Bithynia, which you should recognize it's men- Bithynia is mentioned in the New Testament several times. Uh, the man who is the governor, we have hundreds of his letters. His name's Pliny the Younger. Incidentally, his uncle, Pliny the Elder, died when Vesuvius erupted. But he was a famous Roman writer as well. So you have Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger wrote copiously. We have hundreds of his letters still today, and several of them are his correspondences between himself as the governor and the emperor Trajan. Now, Trajan is often considered to be the greatest of all Roman emperors. It was under him that it reached its peak of prosperity, and that map you see on the back is the empire under him when it's at its greatest territorial extent. So he conquered Mesopotamia, places far outside the normal sphere of influence for the Romans. So Pliny is confronted by Christians, and they will not renounce Christ. Now, this is, this is important because the Roman government basically said, you can believe whatever you want, but whatever you believe, you need to be able to affirm in effect, this is not the word that they would use, but in, in, in effect, it would be affirm the divine right of the emperors to rule. They believed that the gods imbued the emperors with what they called a genius. It's, they don't use it in the same word. that say, we don't use, They didn't use that word the same way we use the word. It comes from the word gens, which is the Latin word for tribe. But it meant that he was the father of the tribe of the world. And so that the gods had empowered him to rule the world in effect and that he had a divine power to do so. Not that he was a god. That was not the claim of most of the emperors. There were some who claimed that. But 
they were recipients of this divine authority. And if you could not worship that divine authority, then you were considered a traitor and unpatriotic. Does that make sense? So because a Christian cannot, basically the minimum they had to do was take a pinch of incense and throw it into a fire and utter incantations in honor of the genius of the emperor. If they couldn't do that, which as a with faith in Christ, you cannot do that, then they were considered unsupportive and un, unpatriotic to the empire. And so because of that, not because they worshiped Christ, in particular, were they going to be persecuted. Like they said, you can believe whatever you want. And as we're going to see, there's going to be groups called Gnostics that are going to worship Christ, but they, the Christ that they worshiped was not the Christ of the Bible, and so they can throw the pinch of incense without any qualms, and they will do so, and they will not be persecuted. So it's that, it's that adherence to Christ alone that is really going to be the problem at the beginning. So Pliny is encountering these Christians as governor, and he is just befuddled as to what to do with them, because at no matter what, they will not recant. They will not recant. And so Trajan is going to take a, he's going to respond to Pliny's question, like, what do I do with them? This is what I am doing. Should I do something different? And Trajan is going to basically take a very moderate approach to the Christians. He says, and this is at the beginning of the second page, he says, <clears throat> you have adopted the proper course, my dear Pliny, in examining into the cases of those who have been denounced to you as Christians. For no hard and fast rule can be laid down to meet a question of such wide extent. The Christians are not to be hunted out. If they are brought before you and the offense is proved, they are to be punished, but with this reservation, that if anyone denies that he is a Christian and makes it clear that he is not by offering prayers to our deities, then he is to be pardoned because of his recantation, however suspicious his past conduct may have been. But pamphlets published anonymously must not carry any weight, whatever, no matter what the charge may be, for they are not only a precedent of the very worst type, but they are not in consonance with the spirit of our age. So what he's saying is, don't seek out the Christians. Avoid seeking out the Christians. But if at the end of it, one is brought before you and won't recant, then he must be punished. But the point is, the spirit of the age is one of somewhat enlightened approach to people. He's saying, if there's an anonymous accusation against somebody that they're a Christian, don't follow up on it. Let them be. So that, that's the approach of the government. Do you think that the church is going to recant Christ, though? No. And there are going to be martyrs, even under Trajan. So, and from this point on, for the next couple hundred years, the situation, the relationship between the church and the Roman government is going to continue to deteriorate. So, you know, once we get past Trajan in particular, it's going to gradually get worse and worse and worse. So, that's the, 
the situation that the church finds itself in. And it's in the midst of that that the church is now going to have to ask itself, what do we do? How do we resolve disputes amongst ourselves? How do we know the best way forward? How do we stay true to the Scriptures? Let me ask you this. Do you think every church had a full set of the New Testament? Bibles were very short supply back then because you had to have somebody copy each letter from the, what we call the exemplar, the one that they were copying from. So everything is copied at a very painstakingly slow pace. Do you think it matters if every letter is right? Oh, you better believe it because eternal differences can hang on small grammatical questions. And so the process of the dissemination, the spreading around of the New Testament was a very slow process. So what did people have to rely on for their teaching? I mean, if they had a copy, they might not have all 27 books of the New Testament. You know, they might have a few, a gospel or a few letters from Paul or something like that. Very few had all of them. So they had to rely on the word of their pastor. And so, who trained their pastor is going to become an incredibly important question. And that is what we call apostolic succession. So as we'll see in a little bit, we're going to talk about some of the apostolic fathers here in a minute. Two of them sat at the feet of the apostle John and learned. So they learned about Christ from the disciple that Jesus loved best. Like, how amazing is that? Yeah, it's like, yeah, my pastor knew, knew John. That's pretty cool. Sorry, Brandon. <laughs> so, uh, the the passing on of this knowledge through who the pedigree, in effect, of the pastors is going to safeguard the knowledge that is in the Scriptures. Now, a lot of these guys are going to have Scriptures, you know, a full set of the Scriptures themselves. Also, it's worth noting, just as a, reference, as a side reference, that the Old Testament that they used almost exclusively is the Septuagint. So I'm not if, if you the Septuagint was produced about 200 years before Christ in Egypt by Hebrew scholars translating the original Hebrew text into Greek. And so that Greek translation, it's not the only Greek translation that was produced back then, but it was the most widely available. That Greek translation is going to be wide much more widely disseminated and much more widely read than Hebrew, than the Hebrew Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, it's going to be interesting because there are, there is, when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's all written in Greek in the New Testament, but there are going to be a mix of quotations from the Hebrew, which we can tell it's from the Hebrew, versus what's in the Septuagint. That's a whole other conversation. I'm sorry I even brought it up. <laughs> so, um, but the point is, 
Because it's the Septuagint, the Old Testament is actually more widely available because they'd been around for a while and copied. That was really where I was going with that. Um, and so it, this apostolic succession is going to be the, tr- the, the, the conduit of transmission of the teachings of the church as it regards to the Scriptures, not authoritative on its own. Does that make sense? It's as it has to conform to what's in the Scriptures. And we'll see here in a minute in some of the ways that that happens. But that also is important because there are going to be lines of apostolic succession. Not everybody is going to be in a line descending from John. People are going to be taught by Peter. People are going to be taught by Paul. In fact, probably more people were taught by Paul than anybody else. But there's going to be people taught by James. Which James? Well, James the son of, James, the son of Zebedee, but also James, the brother of Christ. There's going to be people, there's multiple apostles, so there's going to be multiple lines of authority. And here's the important thing, and this also bears on our understanding of the Bible, is all of their teachings affirmed all of their teachings. So, somebody who studied under the feet of John, or at the feet of John, is still going to affirm the teachings of Paul, even though Paul and John have very different emphases when they write, they're going to affirm both and beyond that, though the teachings of Peter and so on and so on. So this is not an exclusive succession, it's an inclusive succession. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's reflecting the way that the Bible interprets itself. So, that is a, a significant answer that the church is going to have. And so today I want to talk about some of those guys in this apostolic succession. And so you can turn to, let's see, we're at the bottom of the second page. Uh, you can turn to the third page. So as befitting the, this, yes, question. The teachings of the the office of apostle ceased. You know, John was the last of the apostles. So these new this new generation they're called the apostolic fathers. That's because they are the fathers of the church who sat at the feet of the apostles. That's who that's who we're talking about. So they are not apostles. Does that answer your question? So yes, I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. So they, they are not claiming in any way, shape, or form the office of apostle. What they are claiming is, I have authority because I studied under those who were taught by Jesus, and the teachings I have are true. That's what they're saying. And that's why it matters that they affirm what other people in other lines of that succession teach. So, now, there is a dark side to this. It's not manifest yet, but it's going to come. And that dark side is every priest in the Catholic Church or in the Orthodox Church claims apostolic succession all the way back to Jesus. So, the priest that laid hands on them 
had and ordains them, has hands laid on them by earlier priests, and that line goes all the way back. So eventually this succession is going to become calcified and rigid and not inclusive, but exclusive, so that only a few have authority to teach. So what initially is going to be a good thing in the church and a necessary and important thing, and then in no way did they claim exclusivity over time is going to be far more muscular and authoritative than it was ever intended to be, to be corrupted in effect. We're not anywhere near that right now, but that's where it goes. So, uh, so the teachings of the apostolic fathers really are concerned with, uh, they're more ethical than theological. They are concerned with guidance of their flocks. And really, they're, they're, what we, they're epistolary in nature. Almost everything we have is in the form of letters. So it's kind of following along in the tradition of the New Testament. So we have a, a, the letter of Clement to the Corinthians. We have, and we're going to talk about that here in just a moment, we have the letter of Polycarp to the Philippians. We have the letter of Ignatius to the Ephesians. So it gets confusing. So when I say Ephesians or Philippians or Corinthians, I'm not talking about Paul's letters to them. So let's use that as a gateway to talk about the first one, which is written by a man named by Clement of Rome. Now, we don't know a lot about him as a person. The other apostolic fathers we know more about. But Clement was a leader in the church in Rome. Now, Catholic tradition holds that he is the third pope. That's not true. So they say he is, you know, Peter had a successor and Clement was the successor to Peter. We don't know almost anything about him. But interestingly enough, and I think that this is reflective of biblical teaching, when Clement is writing, well, let me just tell you, why is Clement writing this letter to the Corinthians? Because discouragingly, 50 years after Paul is writing, guess what's wrong with the Corinthian church? They're still divided. 50 years on, after the apostle Paul set them to write, they're still having the same problem. Is that not discouraging? It is to me. But it's also encouraging because that shows me that the other believers at that time earnestly cared about that wayward church and prayed for that church and had grace for that church. And, you know, may we also hope that people will have grace for us when we continue to be recalcitrant and wayward. And may we also be patient with those that are. Even if they're, I mean, if they're heretical, if they're teaching falsely, that has to be rejected, unequivocally. But we can be filled with grace for them nonetheless. And that's the way Clement is for the church in Corinth. He is writing them because he is concerned for them. But... Is he concerned for them? No. Throughout the letter, he uses we because he is a member of a plurality of leadership in the church in Rome. He is just one 
of the elders for that church. So it's constantly we, we, we. We are concerned, excuse me, we are praying for you. We are seeking to unify you and to heal these, these woes that has beset your church for decades. So it's, a, it's an interesting insight into what the state of the church of Rome was, especially when you consider that Clement was writing to the Corinthians at almost the same time that John was writing Revelation. So this is right on the heels of Revelation. And how is, the church, how is Rome perceived in Revelation? It's, yeah, it's the whore of Babylon. So it gives us a somewhat different perspective on what's going on in Rome than what John is seeing. And that's not to say that John is seeing wrong, but he's looking at Rome with a very far eye when he's writing Revelation. But at that time, the church in Rome was healthy enough to be reaching out to try to save other churches from destruction. So Clement is an important first component of these apostolic fathers. and We get to see what are they concerned with. So at the bottom of the, is that page three? There's an excerpt that I put in, it says, and this is from 1 Clement 32.4, and so we have been called through His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves, <clears throat> so we having been called through His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So right off the bat, the very first Christian writing that we have after the New Testament is completed, we already see a strong understanding of salvation, justification by faith through grace alone. So Martin Luther in, in the Reformation with his, his three solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia. Bible alone, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. Those are, those are the three solas is what we call them of Martin Luther. He could read Clement and say, amen. So right there at the beginning of the church, you see that they... They have a right understanding of salvation. Uh, I guess less important, um, I included another quote from Clement. We don't have to read it, but it's showing an understanding of the Jewish heritage of the church. I mean, he recognizes Christ as the high priest, which is a central theme of the book of Hebrews. So that, that does a number of things for us. One, I mean, it's showing the connection between the church and the Jewish you know, heritage, but also Hebrews is a really, was heavily disputed in the early church as to whether it was authentic or not, because who wrote it? Well, we don't know. But here you have 
the very first Christian literature post, you know, the closing of the canon is what we call it, affirming, in, you know, the central ideas of Hebrews. So that's a strong affirmation of the inspired nature of the book of Hebrews. So um, you can read more about uh, Clement there. I'm going to pass this around. We don't have a ton of time, but you just, I just thought people, I meant to pass this around at the beginning. Um, this book, it's actually really cheap, but it has a collection of all these early works of the church, the apostolic fathers, of which there's about a dozen. And this one, I mean, not that everyone needs Greek, but it has the original Greek and also the English translation. And it's, it's a great thing to have in your library because this this is the first teachings of the church after the apostles that has been preserved for us. So if anyone wants to look at it, I'll just pass it around. Don't feel like you have to look at it, though. Yes, there will be. Um, okay, so the next one of the apostolic fathers that I want to look at is Ignatius of Antioch. Now, who... Who do we know that came out of Antioch? Who, who was a prominent Christian leader that began their ministry in Antioch? Silas. And there's some bigger names than that. Mark, yeah. Paul. Paul began his ministry in Antioch. And Barnabas. So all of those guys have strong associations with the church and Antioch. And Ignatius is, was one of the first post-apostolic leaders in that church. But, and again, this is affirming this idea of inclusive teaching, inclusive in the sense of all the apostles, not outside of the apostles. You understand? I just want to reiterate that. But Ignatius was a disciple of John. So he learned from John. That, that was, I mean, it, it's conceivable that John could have brought Ignatius to faith. And so Ignatius became the leader of the church in uh, Antioch. And he was operating quietly and till the end of his life, when he was an older man, he ran afoul of the Roman government. And he was then... He probably appealed to Caesar as a citizen in the same way that Paul did, but they decided that he needed to be transported to Rome to be dealt with by the emperor. Now, unfortunately for him, or for, I guess it really doesn't matter, uh, the emperor was off in Mesopotamia conquering the Parthians, so he probably would have been waiting in uh, Rome for a while if he hadn't just been eventually martyred. But... Martyrdom was his intent. He intensely desired to be martyred. In fact, he even said, and I don't have this in the notes, but he even said that his, he did not truly become a disciple of Christ until he was condemned to die. So, I mean, he had been laboring in the church for much of his life, if not most of his life, but he felt like he truly did not know faith until his death was imminent. So he was being transported to Rome from Antioch, and you can find Antioch on the map if you so desire. 
And while he was traveling through Asia Minor, he wrote seven letters that we, we, and we still have all seven of his letters. And these are the only writings that we have from Ignatius. But there is a lot that we can glean from these letters. One of the letters was sent to the Romans. And he says to the Romans, which is what his destination is, where, he's in, where he plans on being martyred, he says, don't try to interfere. You're going to lessen me if you interfere with my martyrdom. He says, let me witness to Christ. Do not stop them from doing this. So, I mean, he, want, he's, he is not suicidal, but seeking out this ultimate act of submission to God. So, I, you know, I can't even imagine what he did to run afoul of the authorities in Antioch. I mean, he must have befuddled the governor there too, just like Pliny was dealing with. Because it's about the same time as Pliny's dealing with guys in Bithynia. So he, he, writes, uh, he writes like his last guidance for the churches as he's going out there. And one of the things that he is most concerned with is false teaching. And you see this as a theme coming up in these letters. And the letters are not long. They're very easy to read, but they're filled with fervor and concern for the church. So they're on towards the middle of the, of the page. I, uh, you know, there's a couple of quotes that he has. Now Onesimus, of his, regarding false teaching, Now Onesimus of his own accord highly praises your orderly conduct in God, for yet... For that ye all live according to the truth, and that no heresy hath come among you. Nay, ye do not so much as listen to anyone if he speak of aught else save concerning Jesus Christ and truth. So he's concerned with true teaching in the church. Incidentally, who's Onesimus? Yeah. The tradition of the church is that he became the leader of the church in Ephesus. So the, the runaway slave in, in Philemon becomes one of the great leaders of the church and is praised here by Ignatius. So, and then the second quote's just reiterating the same thing, um, that, you know, beware of false teaching. That is his, his overriding concern, is that the teaching of the church be true. And to that end, one thing that he is going to advocate is that there be but one bishop. In each church, there is only one bishop. Now, there's a good side and a bad side to this. What he's seeking after is unity, is that the teaching, there's no conflict in the teaching. He wants there to be unity. What's the bad side of this? Guess who's going to be mined heavily when the, Catholic, when the church becomes institutionalized and what we know as the Catholic church? Who are they going to look to to say, see, he said it. It's going to be Ignatius. I don't think what Ignatius has in mind is the Pope as we see him today. So we've got to have a little grace for Ignatius. So, But the last of his seven letters is written to his friend Polycarp, who is the third person we're going to talk about today. We just have a few more minutes. So we'll, we'll finish the rest of the class 
talking about Polycarp. Now, Polycarp, <clears throat> excuse me, really is, in my opinion, the most significant of all of these apostolic fathers. He, too, is going to be a disciple of John. And when John passes on, he's going to also be mentored by Ignatius when Polycarp is a young pastor. Now, next week, we're going to talk about a man named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is one of the first great writers of the church, and he is going to write copious, deep, profound works in, in honor of God and in defense of the faith. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. And when Irenaeus is writing, he is going to be able to appeal. He's going to appeal to Scripture heavily, and that's a whole other conversation that really has a lot of great edification to be mined out of it, and we'll do some of that next week. But he's also going to say, you know that what I'm saying is true, not just because you read it in the Scriptures, because I learned this from John, and John learned it from Jesus himself. So you know that what I say is good and true. That's the, kind, that, you know, that's the value of, A, of apostolic succession, but that's the value of Polycarp as a teacher. Is he is going, his words are going to resonate through those that he taught. <clears throat> so Polycarp, though, we only have one writing of his, which was a letter to the Philippians. And it's, it's also not very long. But interestingly, you can look at the list there that I include on the, on the I think, is that page four? Um, 17 books of the New Testament are included. They are quoted, cited, or alluded to in this one short letter. He has over 100 quotations, citations, or allusions from the New Testament, just the New Testament, not the Old Testament, just the New Testament, not to the exclusion of the Old Testament, I'm saying just from the New Testament, there are a hundred. And he's drawing from 17 books. Now, when we talk about what books are or are not in the Bible, I mean, because people are attacking this to this very day, they are saying, Paul did not write this book. This book should not be in the Bible. This book should be in the Bible, and it's not. But we can look to Polycarp and other apostolic fathers and other church, you know, the apologists that are going to come next. And we can say, no, this was regarded as Scripture right away. So, you know, you look at, at the list and you'll see a lot of big books in there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Corinthians, Galatians. But what's interesting is Hebrews, that was a disputed book. But right away, Polycarp is saying, no, God inspired this. This is Scripture and it's authoritative. Even more interesting, First and Second Timothy are in there. For people to this very day say, Paul did not write First and Second Timothy. But it is considered authoritative Scripture right away by the church. We can see that just in Polycarp's letter. So, but then when we read what he has to say, and I'll just end on, on this and reading some of these quotes for you guys, and, and just, you know, we can meditate them on them for a minute. But he, he, when he writes, 
he writes in a way that it really does resonate with us today. I mean, we recognize the church that he is describing, the faith that he is describing, the Savior that he is describing is the same one that we recognize today. I mean, and the, the, the significance of this is the continuity is there. We can look at Polycarp and these others, but Polycarp is the greatest among them, but we, can, we see our faith in him, in his own writings. We see that which was handed down once for all present with him and descended down to us. So let's, let's read some of these quotes. So, when I, and again, when it, sa- you know, when it says Philippians, it's not Philippians. It's Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. Different thing. So he says, so here, this is regarding Christ as king. He says, Wherefore, gird up your loins and serve God in fear and truth, forsaking the vain and empty talking and the error of many. For that ye have believed on me, that on him, rather, not me, on him, that raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave unto him glory and a throne on his right hand, unto whom all things were made subject that are in heaven and that are on the earth, and to whom every creature that hath breath doeth service, who cometh as judge of quick and dead, whose blood God will require for them that are obedient unto him. What? Disobedient. Sorry. That's not what, you know what I mean. I apologize. I'm, I'm reading fast. Um, regarding our need to submit to God and the Scriptures, let us therefore so serve him with fear and all reverence, as he himself gave commandment and the apostles who preached the gospel to us and the, co- and the prophets who proclaimed beforehand the coming of our Lord. So there he is saying, we are going to give fear and reverence to God through the Old Testament and the New Testament. So he's recognizing both as scriptures, both the apostles and who came before the apostles, but the prophets. So, you know, he is drawing on both. Now, when we read in Acts, when they talked about the Scriptures, Brandon cut me off at any time, but I've got a little more to say, so if I need to go, okay. Um, When we read in Acts, when they talk about Christ revealing all that it said to him about him in the Scriptures, or others revealing Christ in the Scriptures, what Scriptures were they talking about when we read in Acts? It's the Old Testament. But here now we have the recognition and the equivalence of the Old Testament of the prophets with the teachings of the apostles. So we know where Polycarp is learning from. So regarding our hope in Christ, let us therefore without ceasing hold fast by our hope and by the earnest of our, earnestness of our righteousness which is Jesus Christ, who took up our sins in his own body upon the tree, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but for our sakes he endured all things, that we might live in him. Let us therefore become imitators of his endurance, and if we should suffer for his name's sake, let us glorify him. 
For he gave this example to us in his own person, and we believe this. How did Polycarp die? He was martyred. He was the imitator of that endurance. He lived it out. Regarding the need to stand firm in the faith, this is how he closes his letter. Stand fast, therefore, in these things and follow the example of the Lord. Bring firm, being firm in the faith and immovable in love of the brotherhood, kindly affectioned one to another, partners with the truth, forestalling one another in the gentleness of the Lord and despising no man. That's the last word of of Polycarp, and he goes off to his martyrdom. But in all of these things, I mean, these, these are sentiments that we have, that we should have or that we could have. These are teachings that we have. The teachings that we have now first came to us through them. So when Brandon gets up to preach, the person that taught him was brought to faith by someone who was brought to faith exponentially back to somebody in this generation. And we can go back and read their words and know that what they said was true because they learned it at the feet of the apostles who were taught at the feet of the Savior himself. Question. They fit into this timeline in about three weeks. (laughs) So, we will get there, and we we will dwell on that for a little while. So, they don't fit into this part of the timeline. So, we'll we'll get there. So, I am a little over time. I'm sorry I had to compress there at the end, but uh, I hope you all get the idea. I mean, this is a well of wisdom and truth, and it's a part of our heritage. There is not one Christian alive today that doesn't have some connection, known or unknown, to these leaders. So this is part of our heritage. These are forerunners and founders of our faith. So, you know, let us ignore them at our peril. I mean, let us do homage and thank the Lord that they persevered and, and, and died for His sake so that we can be here today and that we can also persevere and, if need be, die for his sake as well. So I will close there, and let me close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us as you strengthened these early followers of your church, that you will give us the endurance that we need to run the race, that you will give us the courage to face whatever trials are set before us, that we will continue to have faith in you, in your promises, in your Son, that we will persevere to the very end. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.